Well, as we continue this morning through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at some plot twists today. Plot twists are those things that make stories interesting. They're like the ironic or unexpected, the surprising turn in the story that you didn't see coming, and it makes fiction worth reading. But sometimes you find plot twists even in real life. Like I'll share with you a story from California in 2012. It's a 31-year-old. His name was Sam Cuccifelli. You see them, him there on the left. Uh, he's a meth addict, a former felon. He, once he got out of prison, he went back to his habits. He had to support it. So he broke into the house of Jay Leone. Jay's on the right there. Breaks into the house. Jay was home at the time. So Cuccifelli puts a gun to Leone's head. He ties him up. He blindfolds him and starts to rummage through his house, robbing him. Eventually, uh, Leone convinces him that he has to go to the bathroom. Look, when a 90-year-old person says he needs to go to the bathroom, he ain't playing around, all right? You get him to the bathroom, right? Gets him in the bathroom. Well, uh, what happens next, you see, Leone there is a World War II vet. He's a retired sheriff's deputy and a gun collector. And he's got a revolver strapped in the bathroom, okay? So, so he, then he comes out of the bathroom now, and he points a gun and says, leave. Well, Cuccifelli there pulls the trigger, hits him in the cheek, shoots him in the face, all right? So now Leone opens up and shoots Cuccifelli three, four times, I can't remember. Cuccifelli then bum rushes him, gets his revolver away from him, puts it up to his head, and pulls the trigger. Click. It's empty, right? So plot twist. And then he freaks out. He bolts, leaves. They catch him. Well, actually, they're both recovering in those, those pictures there. They're both recovering in the same hospital, right? And, uh, of course, it goes to trial. Here's a plot twist. During the criminal trial, Cuccifelli, the felon on the left there, sues Leone. Sues him negligently causing him great bodily injury and other financial damage, including loss of Mr. Cuccifelli's home and also the disillusion of Mr. Cuccifelli's marriage. You've got to be kidding me, right? Like, are you kidding me? And so justice prevailed. He got 86 years in prison and that civil suit was thrown out. But here's the thing. Plot twists make things interesting. They make things very, very interesting, and God is a great author, and he, as he writes history, it's full of plot twists. You understand the gospel is a plot twist. Jesus is killed, and he's down, he's beat. Wait a minute, the tomb's empty, he's up. That's a plot twist. We are rebels. We are caught. We are convicted. We're condemned, but plot twist, he pardons us, he adopts us, and then he makes us co-heirs with Christ? Are you kidding me? And many of us have redemption stories that people look at. That is a plot twist. It's a plot twist right there. God is not a boring author. And as he writes things down, there are plot twists all over the place. We'll see that in our passage today. We'll be in Luke chapter 20. Now, just to set it up, let me remind you that Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He's in the temple area teaching. And that is the very epicenter of Jewish religion. Now, the Jewish leaders expected the the Messiah would come and he would fight a battle. And Jesus will, but plot twist, it just won't be the battle they expected. Primarily, Jesus came to cover the debt for our sins, to be the eternal sacrifice, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
They expected him to come and take issue with the leaders, and Jesus will. But see, the Jews expected him to come and take issue with the Roman leaders and with the Gentiles, but actually Jesus is going to have a bone to pick with the Jews, with those leaders. And that's another plot twist we'll see. Let's get into the story. It's Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 9. It says this. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. Now understand, this story is not very far-fetched. It would be common practice in that day. Remember, it's an agricultural society. And so for somebody to plant and own a vineyard, that's pretty common for them. Sometimes you would go on a long trip to a distant country. And when you do, you need to have it taken. Look, even you people know to get a dog sitter, right? Right? Well, this is a vineyard. And if you let it go, it'll go to seed. It'll just be ruined. And so you need to have somebody that'll tend to it so it maintains the vineyard until you return. And in the meantime, they're tenants and they pay you rent. That is a very good system, a very good plan. The tenants don't think so, right? So when he sends one of his servants to collect rent from them, they say, nah, nah. Because listen, he's so far away. What's he going to do, right? It's not a day and age where you pick up the phone and call a lawyer back in your hometown and say, sue him. It's not going to work that way. And so they just beat him and sent him away. No, we're not paying. What are you going to do? So the guy says, okay, well, I guess uh, we need to send a family member, a rep of the family. Perhaps they'll respect him. We'll send my beloved son. Sends the son. When the son starts coming, uh, these guys kill the son. They might have assumed that the father is already dead and this is the, the only surviving person with a claim to the property. But you understand back in that day, deeds were shaky things. Squatters' rights still exist in cultures today, certainly back then. Squatters' rights would have been in, in force. And so, so if they just kill the heir, now nobody can claim that the property is theirs. That's kind of, for them, that's genius. But their goal was obvious. The goal was not, they didn't care about the owner. They didn't care about the father. They didn't care about the son. They only wanted to possess and to control and to own the vineyard for themselves. That's what's going on. Now, the interpretation would have been very easy for the Jews to figure out. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his vineyard. That would not have been lost on Jewish ears. God had entrusted the vineyard to Israel's leadership. And they had not been producing fruit for the owner. 
And so he had sent his servants. Those are the prophets. God has sent prophets, and they kept mistreating and beating the prophets. So at the end of it all, God said, I know what I'll do. I'll send my son. And indeed, they would kill Jesus as well. Of course, they thought that meant they would get the vineyard. They would own it and control it. And there's going to be a plot twist. Oh, no, you won't. It's going to go to other people. So let's take a look at some of the plot twists. I want to pull them out and point them out for you. The first one that came to mind for me is that being confident that they're in, they realize that they are out. Like because of their religion and because of their theology, they were quite certain, we's God's people. And everyone else, God doesn't love them. God doesn't care about them. God doesn't like them. They're out. We're in. They're out. Religion and theology. And so they could not wait for the Messiah to come because the Messiah is going to go kick the Gentiles' butts. And then he showed up and he went a different route. And it was a plot twist for them. The Messiah came and they found out that they were not okay with God and God was not okay with them. And the reason why is because God was looking for faith, not belief. Faith, not belief. Let me help you understand the difference. Satan believes in God far more than you do. Far more than you ever will. It's an issue of faith that he's looking for. He's looking for love, not just theology. He's looking for relationship, not just religion. And so thinking that they were in, they realized they were out. That's a plot twist. Second plot twist there is uh, they were hoarding it for their own people, but it ends up passing on to others. That was a twist. See, the tenants were the Jews. Let me ask you this. What fruit were the Jews supposed to produce with the vineyard? Gentile believers is the answer I'm looking for. Gentile believers. Now, we have this misperception as we look at the Bible. We think in the Old Testament it was all about the Jews and just for the Jews. And when you go into the New Testament, somehow Jesus shows up and realizes, oh my goodness, there's a waiting world out there that the message should go to. Couldn't be further from the truth. God's heart had always been for the entire world to hear about him. All people, all nations, all races. Everyone in one family for him. That was always his intention. And you can see that when you look at passages in the Old Testament. Like look at Psalm chapter 22 verse 27. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Well, how was that supposed to happen? Well, here's what you're supposed to do, Jews. Look at Psalm 96, verse 3. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Not just your own people, all the peoples. Now, my temptation as a pastor is I was going to like do one passage after another just to crush you so you get it. That this is all over the Old Testament. I'll just give you one more, right? Isaiah 49, verse 6. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This was always on God's heart. And it wasn't getting done. Now certainly when Jesus comes on the scene, he puts a spotlight on that. And that's all throughout Luke. That's why as we go throughout Luke, you'll notice there's a world map in the background. Luke is probably the only Gentile contributor in the New Testament. And compared to the other gospel writers, Luke is all the time mentioning, 
almost like racial issues, and it's for the Gentiles, and it's supposed to go to all people, all nations. Luke is all about that. In fact, it's Luke that records Simeon. You know, when Jesus was a baby and he was taken to the temple, and he was uh, going to be dedicated, Simeon snatches him up, and he says that this is the Messiah who would be, quote, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's part of the Old Covenant. Simeon got it. He knew what it was all about. See, in both Old Testament and New Testament, the owner of the vineyard expected the fruit of the entire world, all the nations hearing about him. God had uniquely chosen the Jews, yes, but he had chosen them not for them. He had chosen them to be a mouthpiece for him to the nations, and they weren't getting it done. The Jews were bad tenants thinking we will keep the vineyard for ourselves. Now, do you remember from last week when Jesus went into the temple and he started kicking butt and flipping tables? He was ticked, right? Because they had turned it into a a commercial market. It was a circus, right? Do you know where that took place? It's in a place in the temple called the Gentile Court. See what's going on? That is where they set up the zoo. That was the only place on earth where devout Gentiles who wanted to seek the one true God, Yahweh, could come to that temple in worship and in prayer. And so the Jews were not only doing bad organized religion for the Jews, but they were destroying the testimony of God to the watching, waiting world. And Jesus was not having it. Not having it. Now the Jews weren't all that worried about it though because they thought they were irreplaceable. He's God's people. God God needed them. Wait, you remember when Jesus was doing the triumphal entry and people were worshiping him and they said, hey, tell your disciples to stop that. And he said, if I tell them to stop, the very stones will cry out. God doesn't need the Jews. God doesn't need us. It's our privilege to be a part of it. And so we are very replaceable. So there was a plot twist. The vineyard's going to go to the Gentiles. And they said, surely not. Check this. Do you notice at what point in the story they objected? <laughs> Jesus said, you're being bad tenants. No objection. Jesus is saying, you beat all the prophets. Yep, we did that. Jesus is saying, you're going to kill the Son of God. No objection. Jesus said, the, the vineyard's going to go to others. Whoa, time out, cowboy, back up. Surely not. Surely not that. That's where they object. That's a plot twist they did not expect. All right, let me give you another. Trying to control the vineyard, they end up kicked out. Trying to control the vineyard, they end up kicked out. Why reject the owner? Why reject the son? And it's because they wanted a religion of power and of control, of selfishness and greed and and just shutting other people out. That's what they wanted. But here's the deal. If you reject God, if you reject the Son, you do not get control. You do not get life. You get kicked out. You don't get control. You get kicked out. And we scratch our heads and think, how could those tenants be so foolish? But folks, understand, people are rejecting Jesus all the time. And they're rejecting Jesus because they think in that move that they're going to get control of their lives and they'll get life itself. And in the end, they get rejected. They get kicked out. But praise God, he will not leave the story like that. And this story Jesus told is not a new story. You understand the very first vineyard was called the Garden of Eden. And God put all of us in our first parents, Adam and Eve. We were all there in them. 
And we were supposed to tend it for him, but we instead we rejected his ownership. We said we want control. We want to run life. Thank you very little. And it didn't go well. That led to the fall of man. Might makes right. Oppression, subjugation, hatred, racism, dominance, all that junk would flow from that when we tell God we can run the vineyard better, thanks. And praise God that Jesus is not okay with that. He will set it right someday. He will set it right. But understand, that's what happens when we're in charge, when the inmates run the asylum. That's what happens. So they expected the Messiah to come and to crush the Gentiles and back them up. And instead, Jesus came and he crushed their leadership and it passed to the Gentiles. They ended up kicked out. And one of the things I want us to hold on to from that is you've got to remember that your religion and your race give you no standing before God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Trying to control the vineyard, they ended up kicked out. Well, let's look at another one. So pretending to be an owner, the true owner was revealed. That's what happened. Now, the, the Jews are strutting around the vineyard, acting like they own the place, right? But do you remember the parable? The story Jesus told starts with a man planted a vineyard, which means it's his. He created it. It serves him. It belongs to him. He's the owner. And that's the way it should be. But the tenants forgot that. They started to strut around and act like they owned it. And so when the servants of the owner showed up, they assumed, hey, they ought to serve us. They should be serving us. But no, that's not the way it would, it would be. So failing to serve the owner, they're going to get kicked out. And that's when they say, surely not. Which is to say, who the heck does God think he is? <laughs> Just think about that se sentence for a second. Who does God think he is? Doing like he thinks he should do? Acting like he's the owner around here. Is that right? And when I say it like that in a caricature, it sounds ridiculous. But you understand we do that in our hearts all the time, right? God, you can't do that. God, you shouldn't do that. God, you should do this. I'm the owner. Obey me, God. You should obey me, God. We do that all the time. It reminded me of one of my favorite quotes from J. Vernon McGee. Look at this. He said, this is God's universe, and he does things God's way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. <laughs> what a great quote. <laughs> You're not the owner. God is. God made it. It's his. Don't forget that it all belongs to God. History belongs to God. The universe belongs to God. The church belongs to God. The word of God belongs to God. The gospel belongs to God. His glory belongs to God. The goal of all history belongs to God. It's all about him. It's not about us. And we make a huge mistake when we start to think that the religion around us, that being Christianity, is there for us and belongs to us. <laughs> this happens to me. I'll be honest with you guys. I get too big for my britches at times. I love how God is using this church to bless more and more people. That's awesome. And because I get to be a big deal. Yeah, you should chuckle. <laughs> You go one county over, nobody knows my name, right? <laughs> like, I just not, but, but, it, but there's a powerful elixir there. So, so when I go out in public, I almost always get recognized now. My family is getting used to the effect. It's always, hi, Pastor Rick, right? I go to Starbucks. I was at Starbucks on Friday. Five, 60 and different people came up to me. Hi, Pastor Rick. 
Now, the other people in Starbucks couldn't hear them address me. After a while, I get to thinking, you know, I wonder if the other people here are just wondering, who is that guy? <laughs> who is that guy? Which is a much different response than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was actually a big deal. And he had the wisdom to point at Jesus and say, he must increase, I must decrease. <clears throat> and so God, I think, decided to humble me. You want to be an owner, son? You want, you want to uh, get recognized a lot? Okay. So I'm coming up on 50 years old, and I was having some digestive issues, and so my doctor ordered me a colonoscopy. <laughs> Maybe you can see where this is going. One of the nurses that would be in the procedure there came into my room to prep me. Hi, Pastor Rick. <laughs> awesome. Be careful what you ask for, buddy. How to get to know your pastor from the inside out, right? Like, oh my goodness. It was as if in that moment, God was saying to me, son, you are not an owner. You are not a big deal. You are just another. I'm not going to finish the sentence. Just think colonoscopy, okay? Like, Saint colonoscopy. Oh, geez. So here's the thing. We are not owners and we're not big deals. At the very best, we are faithful tenants for God. One of the questions I want us to ask ourselves all the time, do you think God exists for your purposes or do you think you exist for God's purposes? Who created whom? Who made that vineyard? And when we look at the lives of the apostles, they took over the running of the vineyard and they were very faithful. And one of the things I try to do time to time is I, I try to compare my life. Like, is my life more like the apostles that I read about in the scriptures or does my life look a little bit more like my non-Christian neighbors? That's a scary question sometimes. Does our experience look like one or the other? Now, we're often, if we're honest, acting like we're owners of the vineyard and, and we're just not. We're just not. And so we would say along with the Jews, surely not, surely not. And when they objected, Jesus would respond to them. I want to look at the rest of this passage with you. We'll pick it up again in verse 16. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. <laughs> One minor twist here is that they thought it would be a debate, and they got destroyed. I told you last week, do not debate with Jesus. You'll lose every time. You're bringing a knife to a gunfight, which reminded me of this famous scene from Indy Jones. Watch this. And that, my people, is what it looks like to debate with Jesus, okay? Like, just don't do it. And so what Jesus did, he was really kind of gentle and sensitive at first. He told them a nice story. And they didn't get it, and they wanted to argue with him. So it says he looked them in the eyes. He stared them down. He quotes scripture, and he makes it painfully clear. And there are a couple more plot twists that we find. 
The first I notice in this recent chunk of the scripture that we just read is that, that rejecting some scrap as junk, it turns out to be the key piece for our salvation. Now what Jesus did, when he starts talking about the cornerstone there, he is quoting from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was widely recognized as a messianic psalm. In fact, during the triumphal entry, when Jesus is entering and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that's quoting Psalm 118. That's why the Jewish leader said, tell your disciples to stop it. And Jesus is like, no, it's about me. In fact, he makes it very clear. He claims to be the cornerstone from Psalm 118. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And everyone knows it. And so he, one of the things we caught from that tenant thing, did you notice that the owner sent these servants, these prophets, and they all got rejected? And then he sent the son, which means the son is not one of the prophets. There's that tendency to talk about Jesus like he's another teacher, another one of the prophets. Uh-uh. He's categorically different. This is the eternal son of God, God himself, who shows up as the Messiah and as the cornerstone. And that's why you can't reject him. You just can't reject him. He's the cornerstone. What's it mean to be a cornerstone? Okay, so in that day, the way they built things, they had a different way of laying foundations. The very first thing they would do is lay the cornerstone, and it had to be perfect. And so the master builders would be very picky about, no, not that one, not that one, not that one, here it is. Because once you lay that one, that sets the orientation of the walls of the building as well as the level. Very picky about that stone. And Jesus is saying, I am that stone. The builders had rejected him. Remember, at the time, Jesus is standing in the temple, which was built of stone, and they had chosen that temple over the cornerstone of God, Jesus himself. Why reject Jesus as a cornerstone? Because they didn't like the kind of temple that one would build. Jesus would build an upside-down kingdom, one of humility, where the messy and the marginalized are welcomed in, while the Gentiles and all people are welcomed in. He's setting up uh, one that where God is a big deal and we are not. Uh, we don't like that one. Reject that. So they rejected. And the thing is, they end up destroyed from it, not Jesus. And what he's saying is, listen, if you don't build your life on Jesus, you don't build your life around Jesus, you will end up crushed. You will end up hurt. You need Jesus. It's all about him. He's the cornerstone. So scrapping him as junk, he ends up being the key piece. Now let's look at one last plot twist, and it's this. By rejecting Jesus, they end up rejected. So the point is, you reject the cornerstone. The stone didn't get hurt by this one. Jesus wasn't all bunched up. Nobody likes me. Like the stone wasn't hurt. They were destroyed by it. The Jews had a saying that if the stone falls upon the pot... Alas for the pot. But if the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. See, the clay pot gets crushed either way. If you fall on Jesus to attack him, it's going to destroy him. You just reject him. He comes back at the end of time and crushes you. Either way, the stone will be fine, but we will not. And so in the first story, remember, they killed the son. But what happened to Jesus? He rose again. He was just fine. And when you reject him as cornerstone, he doesn't get all bunged up. He'll be just fine, but it destroys us. Now, the whole crushing verbiage, we don't like. We don't like hearing that. 
But think about this for a second, folks. God has been incredibly, incredibly patient for thousands of years. He sent prophet after prophet, and they rejected the prophets. And then he sent his son, and they killed his son. And when they did, they rejected the cornerstone, and the cornerstone's going to be just fine. But those who reject will not be. Why? Think about what they are rejecting when they reject Jesus, when any of us reject Jesus. We're rejecting the very embodiment of love, mercy, and grace. Don't want that. What? We, we are not just rejecting some expendable part of connecting with God. Like all paths lead to God. You don't really need Jesus. Wait a minute, time out. He's the chief cornerstone. You have to have him. And the reason you have to have him is because in Jesus, that is different. He is different than any other world religion. All world religions, including Christianity, are man's attempt to get to God. But only in Christ do you have God coming to man. It's incredibly different. That's why our salvation then is not based on what we do, but based on what Christ did. That he is essential. He's our only hope. And if you reject him, you reject everything. You lose everything. You end up crushed. And what you end up with then is a religion, many world religions, and again, sometimes Christianity goes by this. You end up with a religion that is all about control and competition and comparison. And that's not Jesus. Religion isn't enough. If you reject Christ, you lose everything. Now, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, history kind of repeats itself a little bit. God does a little interesting thing in the storyline here. So, so the running of the vineyard goes to the apostles. And the apostles started out preaching in this exact same temple. And when they did, Peter healed a guy and he got arrested and examined, and they asked him a question very similar to they asked Jesus. By what authority are you doing these things? And listen to Peter's response in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You can't scrap Jesus. If you reject him, you end up rejected. Jesus will be just fine. You will not. That's the bad news. Let me tell you the good news. If you're a really crappy builder, there's a chance for you. If you're a hot mess, you've got a shot. I don't care what nation or heritage you come from. Doesn't matter. You got a chance. Jesus said in that moment that it will not be about how good of builders we are. It'll be about how good of a cornerstone he is. And if you stand on that cornerstone, you will not be hurt. You will be saved. All of us have a shot in Christ. It's great news. You see, God is a very surprising, surprising God. There are a lot of plot twists going on in this story. In fact, there's plot twists going on throughout history. And I wonder if you will allow some plot twists in your life today. So, so Jesus is the cornerstone of all history. That is why when we come in, we're worshiping the one around whom everything circles. It all focuses on him. We are worshiping the cornerstone of all time. 
That's why when we come in and worship, we put our foot on the gas. We raise our hands in worship to him. Some of you are like, well, I don't want to raise my hands. And by the way, the whole band doesn't raise The guitarists don't raise their hands. <laughs> Seriously, stop it. Listen, what we want to do is we want to, would you please just start to worship the cornerstone? And then, and then would you allow a plot twist such that he becomes the cornerstone of your whole life that you build around him so you receive Christ, not religion. And, and you allow him to change you from the inside out, building your life around him. Quit holding him at bay. We do this, don't we? We just want a little bit of Jesus. I'll still be the bill. I'll still decide but a little, little dabble of Jesus on Sundays. Man, let him be the cornerstone that you build your whole life off of him. And when you stand on him, you will not be disappointed. In fact, what I want is a plot twist in your life. That God changes you so very much that when people who know you look at your life, they go, wow, plot twist. Did not see that coming. Look what God did there. In fact, I want to pray for that. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come to you, I guess at first repentant, because if we're honest, Lord, we've been pretty crummy tenants, and we have often acted like owners, and often tried to grab control as if we can run it better, and we can run life, and Father, it's just ruining things. It's ruining our world. It's ruining our own lives. We want to turn from that right now. We want to turn back to you, the true owner, the cornerstone that we would allow you in your right place in history, your right place in the world. I know you don't need our permission, but in our hearts we want to enthrone you there and worship you well. And then we want you to be the cornerstone of our lives such that we would build our life off of you. Oh, Father God, would you do some plot twists in our very midst today? And I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.